Once in a while, I, I, I go on the internet and just I don't buy a paper anymore, but uh, look and read the news. And um, I, I want to put on some headlines that I came across this week. And uh, look how some of these read. Police uh, arrest a man in an elevator stabbing a boy of six. 800 babies buried in a septic tank in an Irish home for unmarried mothers. Banker pleads guilty to three counts of fraud and teens who killed grandparents wanted money. When you just browse through just the headlines, you realize that sin and evil abound in this world. If you're new here, we've been walking through the book of Habakkuk and looking at this Old Testament prophet. But if he were here today and he looked at those headlines, I'm convinced that he would say this, deja vu. It was happening back in our time as well. The world hasn't changed. See, understand this. He lived at a time when Judah wasn't doing so well as a nation. But one of the things for him, he he didn't want to just sit by quietly and just observe what was going on out there. He actually went to God and he lodges some complaints to God about the evil that's going on in the world. And last, two weeks ago, um, we looked at chapter 2, how God responds to those complaints. And the response was a little bit different because it was, basically, it was the form of a lesson about the spiritual battle between good and evil. And we looked at some of the imagery of, of how evil kind of rules in one sense the worlds and some, at some eras it's worse than others, yes. But there's this consistency of how people live in this world when they don't know Christ. But when one digs down a little bit in that chapter, there's another thing we, we pointed out in that God is still sitting on the throne. And God, one day, is going to judge humanity and judge the evil and the the, the wickedness of where people are at. But it reveals to us, this chapter 2, that God is in control. And one of the ways we saw that, and I didn't go down this path last time, is that there is a series of woes there. And a woe is kind of a a warning that judgment is coming, that God is going to one day step in. But look at, let me put some of those woes, kind of how it's implied in chapter 2. Woe to the proud and the puffed up who are consumed with themselves. Woe to the greedy who use people for their own gain. Woe to those whose lives are filled with dishonesty. Woe to those who are filled with violence. Woe to those who are consumed by sexual immorality. Woe to those who are living lives of idolatry. See, these woes, in one sense, are kind of sobering. And almost, especially if you have to apply them to 2014. Do the woes apply for today? And I'm convinced, yeah, to some degree they are. But the belief is that one day, Rebellion is going to be dealt with. But there's something even more challenging here for me today. And in, in the midst of this prophecy, Habakkuk comes complaining to God 
about, and he lists all of these sins, and God, he implies just the sinfulness of the people, the perverted justice, the evil that's going on. But when you look at the reply, and we're not going to take time today to do that, but when you look at the reply, Habakkuk wasn't told to go out and shout out to the nation, stop the violence, stop the perversion. He doesn't tell Habakkuk to go tell them to turn from evil. I don't know if you've caught that when you've been reading Habakkuk. He doesn't tell them actually even to repent. And you go, what's that all about? I I think first it implies something about God. And and again, again, this is another sobering issue. And, And it's this, God has the right to decide at any point in history that he can come into history and say, enough. No more opportunities. I'm going to deal with it. And that was, that's what was going on with Judah. God said, enough. There was no more opportunity really for repentance. Chaldeans were going to come and run over your land. But I, I think when you apply that, you go, can God jump into 2014 and say, enough. Matter of fact, could he even do that in our lives? If we're trapped in sin, I I, I had to go to Hebrews 12. I'm not going to read it, but Hebrews 12 is a process where God can step in and discipline even his children. He says, enough. And I've seen that with people. A, a, A woman out in Vancouver, when we lived out there, I'm convinced that God took her life because of the sin that she was trapped in. And he said, enough. But let me throw you another observation here. When it talks, there were righteous people in this time, Habakkuk being one of them. There was people scattered through the land that were wanting to walk with God, that, were, that, that loved God. But God doesn't tell them, leave the evil country. He, he doesn't tell them to isolate themselves from the evil people around them. God simply tells the righteous people, yeah, there's a pending judgment coming, but don't run away. But he tells them one simple command. And and let me put that on the screen from chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it's not upright with him. And then this last phrase, But the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by faith. That's quoted both in Romans and Galatians and Hebrews. It's the idea that, that, that he's calling the righteous in the midst of evil to walk by faith. Trust me. Live by faith. Even when there's evil all around us. It applied to Judah And and folks, I think it applies to us in 2014. We are called to live by faith. As I was working through the sermon, I go, okay, that simple phrase, but so profound, and I had this thought, and just maybe, maybe, God is more concerned about his children living by faith than getting evil people to stop doing their stuff. Is that a possibility? 
See, see for us, I, I think the challenge is people, evil people are evil people. In every generation, it just keeps coming. But so the question that I left you with two weeks ago, what does it mean, this phrase that's quoted and changed just a little bit in the New Testament, but what does it mean to walk by faith, to live by faith? Now, now for the negative, I think when you dig into Habakkuk, you go, obviously the wicked aren't living by faith. We can assume that. They don't even want to. They don't really care. They stand condemned. It's the opposite of living by faith. But we need to dig and unpack this a bit. And here's the challenge. I can't approach this topic of living by faith on a surface level. I feel like at times we want a simple answer when chaos comes into our lives, into the world, the sin is around us, and we just want a simple way to do it and get on with life. But I can't go there this morning. But let me approach it this way. Let me give you a couple of things of what I think it doesn't mean some flawed understanding of what faith is about. And if you have the bulletin notes, if you're following along there, number one, I said it this way. Some people believe this, that living by faith equals living a good moral life. See, we call ourselves Christians, but they take this view that if I just live okay before God, and I believe in God, and I believe in Jesus, that's living by faith. And folks, trying hard to live morally is really just trying to keep the law in a very subtle way. And matter of fact, for some people, it's an eternal and it's a fatal flaw. Spiritually fatal. Just trying to live a moral life is going to get me to God. And you go, no. No. But there's a second way I think there's a flawed understanding of faith. And I think this is held by way too many Christians. Number two, I said it this way. Living by faith is about responsibility. Now let me unpack that just a second here. What do I mean by that? It, it kind of goes like this. Yeah, there's evil in this world. But to live by faith is about living responsibly. When the hard times come into our lives. Matter of fact, I see this in marriage issues. Hard times are battering people's relational world, and it kind of goes like this. I'm just going to will myself to live a certain way, so I'm just, okay, I'm just going to obey God, and we kind of self-will that. Maybe to paraphrase it differently, it's kind of pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, and I'm going to get through this, what God is allowing to go on in my life. Just kind of suck it up and make things happen. Just believe and act positive when all hard things are coming in, our, in my life. Matter of fact, I think we take some scripture and we, we create some kind of some mantra phrases. And, and it's kind of like this. We go to Romans 9 and we go, all things work together for good. I know that's true. All things work together for good. I know that's true. And we try to do some positive thinking along those lines. And understand the reality is, is that that's just faith in faith. It really isn't what Habakkuk here is, is God's asking Habakkuk to do. See, we can miss the point, though. What is God communicating to Habakkuk? 
Now, now again, I, I think this is a little more complicated, a little weightier. But when you look at the progression of Judah and their sin, Judah's sin was far more than just some actions of moral ugliness. Folks, somewhere along the line, Judah, the people of Judah, they lost something which started the path to do the evil moral actions. Matter of fact, that last woe was the woe toward idolatry. And do we recognize what idolatry really is? It's this, is that we give our love, our affections, our energy, our worship to things other than God. And it might be physical idols, but idolatry goes way beyond just an idol or a pole or whatever that we bow down to. See, Judah was giving their worship to everything else other than God, Yahweh. See, the deeper issue before their sins came, they actually abandoned God himself. They turned their backs on God, the God who had saved them. But if we stop and ponder this, cannot we also turn our backs relationally on God? Can we do that in 2014? And I think it's very subtle for us. I think this reality exists, that one can try to be religious, you can go to church, you can listen to worship music, and we can still forget an aspect of a relationship with Jesus. See, one can, have, can default to having a form of religion and we can try to live moral lives and we can even serve the church. And when hard times come, we can try to just kind of pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and go, okay, God's in control. Yeah, I believe that. But effectively, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're living by faith. Let me put a statement on the screen again just to reinforce it. I said it this way, too often people are failing to pursue a walk by faith that is based on a relationship with the triune God. That's the missing point. And effectively for us, that relationship is revealed through the Son of God to Jesus. See, we look around and we look at a country like the United States abandoning God left and right doing exactly what the woes are condemning Judah for. But we want sin to go away. But hear this, it never will without a relationship with Jesus. For the nation of Judah, they forgot about God and Yahweh. And for us, we can forget about God and Christ and still assume that we're walking by faith. Let me put a definition that I came across of walking by faith on the screen. It says this, to walk by faith 
is to fear God more than man, to obey the Bible even when it conflicts with man's commands, to choose righteousness over sin no matter what the cost. And for many people, they look at that and go, that's not bad. Can I tell you that's flawed? This definition is flawed. At the core of the definition, it's actually built about about our personal responsibility. And trying hard is really at the center of that definition. Now, are we to fear God? Yes. Are we supposed to obey the Bible? Of course. Are we to choose righteousness over sin? Absolutely. But what is lacking there? Can I say this? Jesus. (laughs) The person of Jesus. A relationship with the benevolent Father. Let me give you a simpler definition, and it's really really more profound, and it's a lot deeper, and it's a lot harder in one sense. Let me throw it up on the screen. If you're taking notes, I said it this way. Walking by faith, Go to that next slide there. Are we getting there? There we go. Is abiding in Christ. Walking by faith is abiding in Jesus. See, too too often people walk by faith without seeking Jesus. The Son of God has to be the object of of our faith. Walking by faith is to always be centered in a relationship with Christ. And I realize this isn't always the normal definition for some people. But living by faith works through a love relationship with Christ. And if there's no relationship with Christ, trying to live the right way and not complain is merely faith in faith. And this is so subtle. But I submit to you, it is so critical. See, when we live by faith, the object of faith is Christ and His work, the gospel. But let me show you a passage from Galatians chapter 5. It it was stunning how it fit with some of the songs we sung today. Look at Galatians 5, starting at verse 6. How faith is connected to a love relationship. Now remember, Galatians is written to a group of people who are trying to bring people back to an an idea that religion is about works and trying harder. But look at how it reads. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. The hope of righteousness really is Christ. If you looked at 1 Peter, it points that out. Hope and Jesus are the same. Looking to the future, you know, it's, it's hard times. Yeah, it's coming. Verse 6, for in Christ, this little phrase, in Christ, that's the union, the spiritual union that we have with Christ. But neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. That's the works that we work so hard at. Duty, trying harder. But he goes on, but only faith working through what? Through love. Faith works through love. Do you realize that love only exists when there's two entities involved, two people involved? One gives love and the other responds to that love. 
And faith is about responding to the love of Christ in our hearts and our lives. Embracing His love. He becomes the object of which we pursue a walk of faith. Now, now let me try to get more practical. I, I told Deanna last night, I really don't like my sermon today because I, I feel like I'm struggling with how, how to make it practical. But I, but I said earlier that moral life kind of defines people, they want to walk by faith by just being good and believing hard enough. But the delusion there a lot of times is this. If we just don't do some of the big sins... You know what, then we're kind of, we're okay and we're walking by faith. But I think we, we got to pause and go, what are some of the obstacles? Yeah, we're not caught in the big stuff. But what are the obstacles to having a relationship of walking by faith with a relationship with Jesus? And as I, I ponder them, it's stuff like this. Our careers gets in the way of a relationship with Jesus. Our love of success, our love of security, money, ambitions of distinction, honors. We can, you can even put in there biblical knowledge just to make us look good. You see, things get in the way of a relationship that are far more subtle for us if we want to stop and admit it. Let me put on the screen, though, a, a simple statement that Paul said that I think is the picture of walking by faith. Look at Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, for him, for me to live by faith is Christ. He could have added that in there and it would have fit perfectly. It was found, he found meaning and purpose and focus in the person of Jesus. And that was his ambition. And that is a walk of faith. I, I came across a quote here. Look what it says this. The point is that faith isn't a mystery. It's the gaze of our soul. And so if we're captured by Christ and by his love for us, we're living by faith. The question, where is our soul gazing? Where do we gaze? When we leave here tomorrow morning, when we wake up? Is it about Christ? Are we gazing at Christ or, or something else? As I struggled this week of going, okay, how do I make this practical? Uh, there was a word that ended up just, I ended up seeing. I go, that's the right word. Uh, let me put a word up in the definition with it on the screen. It's the word enamored. Interesting word. Look at what, look at the definition from Webster's. To inflame with love usually in the passive sense, but to cause to feel strong or ex excessive interest or fascination. Like baseball fans, example there, are enamored with statistics. Some of you are enamored with the Vikings. It doesn't matter, okay? 
But catch this, this, this word is so, it's really right on the money here. Because if we are enamored by Christ's love, it will change the way we think. It changes what and who we think about. Matter of fact, what Jesus does is he changes our focus from thinking about us to loving him. When we're enamored by Christ, we can live a life in this sinful world in the midst of it, and we can walk by faith, and we can look around at those sinful people, and we can go, I can love you. Why? Because Christ is giving me the power to love you. When we're enamored by the love of Christ, we think of others differently because the lens of Christ is put in front of us before we see people. And how Christ loved them and wants them to respond to his love. You see, when we're enamored by Christ, our conduct will be changed. When we're enamored by his love, our response to hard times, when we're going through hard times, guess what? It will be different. We will live in a trusting relationship and saying, God is in control and he's good. Parents, do you want your children to move away from home and continue a walk with Christ? I would say this. Do this first. Model with Christ, a relationship with Christ where, where your kids can look at your life and go, Mom and Dad are enamored with Jesus. It will impact the kids. And help them, give them a model of what they need to do. I, I think of people fighting in marriage relationships. You realize this? If one of those two people become enamored with Jesus, it changes the whole dynamic of that relationship. First, they're going to look at the other person and go, I need to love you like Christ. Instead of fix you. You understand how it changes us from the inside out. For students, what does it mean for you? When you want to make a difference in faith out there in your school, guess what it will be? If you become enamored with Christ... It's not, see, it's more than just living your life morally good in front of people. It's where they look at you and go, the object of your affections is Jesus. Now, I, students, I'll, I'll tell you this is that um, you could be uh, persecuted for it, uh, re, reviled for it, but guess what? If you're enamored with Jesus, you'll have the power and it won't be an issue. That's the challenge. You'll have the power to overcome and love people. See, that's faith. Living by faith in a hostile world means that we have Jesus right with us and he becomes the lens of which we look at the world. And Habakkuk, I think, began to get it and understand it. You see, he listens and it doesn't say how long between chapter 2 and chapter 3, but... Habakkuk ends up giving a prayer. And we see, I believe, that there's this 
aha something that took place as he listens to God and as he ponders this. And I believe that he had an aha moment. And it leads really to an application. On your notes, I said it this way. Walking by faith based on a relationship with Christ moves us from navel-gazing to God-gazing. See, in chapters 1 and chapters 2, primarily in 1, Habakkuk's whining. Yes, he had strength to go there, and I'm glad he was willing to do that. But in one sense, he was a bit navel-gazing. And somewhere in in chapter 3, somewhere he ended up having a shift. And I want to read you the first couple verses of his response here to see this aha thing that took place with Habakkuk. Now, just to stop here before I read this, um, a couple pieces here. If you have a literal, you'll you'll see the word selah in, in your translation there. And understand this, this was a poetry, and it was meant to be put to music and to words so that they would learn this and memorize it quickly. So it's to be sung. Maybe we can get one of the worship people to put it to music sometime for us. But Habakkuk, there was a change. And I'm, I'm going to use the message just because it adds some flavor and color to the English language rather than the literal. But look how it goes, one and two. A prayer of the prophet Habakkuk with orchestra, meaning to be sung. God, I heard what our ancestors say about you, and I'm stopped in my tracks down on my knees. Do among us, look at the, hear the change of attitude. Do among us what you did among them. Work among us as you worked among them. Do, do you feel the surrender here of taking place? And as you bring judgment, Chaldeans are going to roll over the land, as you surely must. He acknowledges, God, you're in control. Remember mercy. God, would you take care of the righteous? God, I trust you. And look at how he keeps going. God's on his way again. God's in charge. Retracing the old salvation route, probably referring to Israel coming out of Egypt and and going to the promised land. He had heard about it, he knew it, he knew the facts of it. But he's giving, you see how it's so focused on God? Coming up from the south through Teman and the Holy One from Mount Peron. Skies are blazing with his splendor. His praise is sounding through the earth. His cloud brightness like dawn exploding, spreading, fork lightning shooting from his hand. What power hidden in that fist? Points to probably Mount Sinai in God's glory being revealed there. Then plagues march before him, pestilence at his heels, probably the plagues coming out of Egypt. Remembering God worked. And he stops, he shakes the earth, he looks around, nations tremble, age-old mountains fall to pieces, ancient hills collapse like a spent balloon. The paths God takes are older than the oldest mountains and the hills, and I saw everyone worried in a panic. Old wilderness adversaries, Cushion and Midian, were terrified, hoping he wouldn't notice them. As Israel came out, the nations knew this group of people, and they heard about God working, and they were terrified of these people. 
He was recalling that. You catch, though, what ha- what's happening in Habakkuk's heart is that he was earlier in chapter 1, he was going, what about all of this stuff in my life? And it's not fair, God. What are you going to do with evil? And all of a sudden in chapter 3, he bows and he's looking up and he's gazing to God and he's seeing a God who is responding and who loves him and is merciful and compassionate and loving and holy. See, I I think it comes down though for this are we gonna if if we're gonna walk by faith and stop navel gazing are we gonna become enamored with Christ see when we know him when we begin to figure out what it means to abide with him walking by faith in a dark world And when times are hard in other circumstances in our life, we go, it's okay. God is in control. God is good. The Holy Spirit in Christ is there with me. And I can trust God day by day because His mercies are new every morning. Here's my last challenge for you. I'll end on this one. How about this week, beyond your quiet time, go on another date with God. Spend an hour or two, take some music, take the word, take your prayer journal if you do that, and just sit before God and say, God, I want to know you. God, would you reveal your son to me through the scriptures? Would I embrace you relationally? Not just try harder and be more self-disciplined, but would I sense your presence and your love and your compassion and your desire to be with me? Take a date with God this week. Let's stand and pray.